Okay, hi everyone. Um, I'm just trying to get my timer here. Hang on, okay. Um, thank you again, um, Sherry, Natalie, thank you for all your hard work and uh, for this terrific, terrific gathering of people. Um, this project is a Sloan Foundation funded project. Uh, we answered a call for letters and it came to do with just transition. So our project specifically looks at petroleum producing Native American communities. Uh, we have certain number of, of tribe partners and then looking at what questions are the tribes interested in asking. So instead of us deciding what questions were important to the tribe, part of our project is a qualitative piece, which is going to the tribes to engage with them, to understand what questions are they looking at with respect to transition. We focused on petroleum producing um, energy tribes. There is a sort of small subset of tribes that produce oil and gas, uh, particularly because they will face different challenges than um, other kind of uh, other tribes. So they already have these income sources of kind of a reliable, you know, fairly reliable stream of royalty revenue, production revenue attributed. And then the challenges then associated with transition go to not only whether they are going to decide, but um, what is going to replace those revenue streams should they decide to transition. And the other um, challenge that we have uh, encountered with this project is how to make sure we address equally the different stakeholders that are intra-tribal. So the leadership and executive council, the business entities are very different from the community stakeholders, those that are suffering more of the environmental justice burdens if they are living next to projects or have different, um, different feelings about uh, petroleum, uh, development. So that's kind of broadly where this project um, sits. I wanted to um, mention that Jaime Collazo, who's my Sloan-funded research assistant, is a co-author on this project. And I have this wonderful, wonderful collaborator who leads the uh, Indigenous program or co-director of the program, Monty Mills, um, at University of Washington. So we have a formal partnership with the Southern Ute um, Indian tribe. Uh, that tribe has a, um, a, a really long, lengthy history of uh, petroleum development. And what is so interesting about the Southern Ute is that they really took it upon themselves to understand the business of oil and gas. And this is something that we have um, in, in working with other tribal partners at this point have really... Um, thought about in terms of knowledge transfer and knowledge acquisition. And um, with respect to the sort of, um, you know, history, the, uh, 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 the very kind of challenging, tragic history of Native American communities, there is a lag then in sort of educational outcomes, health outcomes, a lot of disparity related to um, historical treatment. And so a lot of then of, of this knowledge gap goes to addressing the inequities that occurred in sort of uh, these sort of prior historical and even current uh, periods of time. So what the Southern Ute did that was very different is that they gave themselves a pause and said, we are no longer going to work with any kind of developer, federal government, stay away. We're putting a moratorium on all development. They did this, I believe, in the late 70s, early 80s. And with that, they just went back to sort of education. They taught themselves, they consulted with experts, and they decided what form of operational model, what type of contracts, they learned the business of it. 
And then they went back into petroleum development. They're considered kind of a model tribe for this. And a lot of other tribes that we have had discussions with have really mentioned the Southern Ute as a, uh, as the um, a nation that has really done this very thoughtfully. So they have a lot of standards within the place. They're very, very... Um, uh, protective of the community too. Um, there's obviously a big history of sort of the extractivism, not only with respect to natural resources, but knowledge extractivism that's happened with, nat uh, with Native American communities. And so the tribe has been very aware about their interactions with researchers, and we've really appreciated um, their, their knowledge and, and this sort of partnership. The Navajo Nation is a large nation, and they have a very rich history of natural resource. Uh, that, so coal is a big part, coal mining. Uh, they have oil and gas. They are also one of the nations that has kind of a, a rich uh, deposit of critical minerals. They are also, um, I think, one of the, I think the largest, the largest percentage of kind of representative population in the United States that suffers from a lack of electricity. So here you have kind of these depictions of the resource curse at work. And I think what's interesting and a, and a potential kind of research topic is there's obviously been a lot written internationally um, about uh, the resource curse, but I think it's interesting to look at the sort of history of colonialism as it pertains to the resource curse. So who is suffering from the curse? Probably those kind of non-Norwegian models um, where you didn't have these kind of colonizer uh, pre or histories. So the Navajo Nation is a really um, important entity. It's also very large. That was one of the areas that we decided uh, when thinking about who we wanted to partner with is maybe looking at these kind of smaller to sort of medium-sized nations um, that did not have the kind of resource potential as, as the Navajo. The MHA Nation is another um, very interesting uh, partner. It is mostly in North Dakota. It's in North Dakota. And the nation then sits atop the Bakken. And so the Bakken is a very, very kind of oil-rich area. And the MHA nation has really embraced oil and gas production. And its kind of um, fortunes have fluctuated very heavily with uh, commodity prices. And the Southern Ute Indian tribe and even the Navajos, these other nations are, are looking uh, for diversification within their energy portfolios. So the Southern Ute um, decided to move away from kind of offshore petroleum, looking at renewable energy projects, the Navajo also looking for renewable energy. The MHA have decided to continue with this uh, with oil and gas. And so what we've decided is to focus on um, these these different nations. So some of it is we are still, uh, trying to establish a formal partnership to comply with Institutional Research Board, the IRB process. Um, that has proved that it could be a separate presentation, separate work in and of itself, the, the engagement part. Um, I have the Oklahoma Five Tribes here listed. Oklahoma has another kind of very older um, set and of, of oil and gas production. It's oil and gas production is uh, some of the oldest in the country after Pennsylvania and along with Texas. And I think for the purposes, we've decided that it's probably too big, uh, too big for our project to kind of pursue anything with, with Oklahoma. Um, 
So uh, uh, we've got the sort of uh, the paper before you is really started out as a research memo. And so the research memo was um, we have three parts to our team. We have a qualitative engagement part, which is an ethnographer. We have a, a Native American historian who uh, looks at petro-sovereignty with the nations. And so those uh, collaborators, co-PIs, are going out to the tribes, to community and leadership. So trying to establish connections with different stakeholders who have different perspectives with respect to uh, current sort of resource development in addition to what transition looks like and what values those stakeholders um, hold uh, most sacred. Then uh, once we get that qualitative engagement data, it's coded, we have then a separate team with just resources for the future. And so we're working with RFF and their economists in addition to another economist at Michigan. And there we've gotten these different policy scenarios where we have pricing scenarios for oil and gas. So we have kind of a you know status quo. We have moratorium or ban. So assuming there is no more oil and gas production. And then we have kind of a high price, low price scenario. So a couple of scenarios so that we can go back to the partners to say, okay, well, this is kind of what we think under different policy regimes and under different pricing regimes, uh, what the what oil and gas production may look like and, and revenues uh, particularly. The next part of that is we have a geospatial because the idea of transition is, okay, well, we tell everyone transition, transition. Josephine's presentation was phenomenal. But what if there's nothing to transition to? So go and do um, solar, but there's no siting for any kind of solar, right? And all we're reliant on is distributed or microgrids. What if you want to do um, wind, but you really don't have any siting potential for wind, right? You're out of kind of that Midwestern, you know, wind corridor. So a lot of this is making sure that there is something to transition to. So we have a GIS um, a specialist at RFF who's phenomenal, and she's taken a lot of the um, Department of Energy, um, a lot of their data to then look at the the partners we're working with. So looking at their uh, geographic areas and then seeing, and we focused, we didn't focus on solar, we focused on wind. And so looking to see if there is wind potential, the generation capacity and the, the land sort of space, the um, size needed for solar, we didn't think uh, was possible with a lot of our reservations. And the other um, uh, uh, yesterday, uh, Lindsay, Sophie did a phenomenal job and, um, Steph, your presentation too on the, the checkerboarding of land following the Dawes Act, a lot of that checkerboarding then prevents kind of an aggregation of land potential and scale needed for a lot of these projects. So if you don't have anything to transition to, then what does the transition look like for you? The other problem that the tribes often face is the connection problem. So this goes to Josh's talk yesterday. So if I don't have distribution or not even distribution, transmission, so I can generate energy. And if it's clean energy, it's generative. But I don't have a connection. So the, the utility won't connect to me because I don't have a population or I don't have enough capacity that makes it worthwhile or there's a monopoly in the state with respect to uh, transmission lines and then to local distribution. So we're, as we're getting into this project, we're learning that you know this research memo then focuses on, on justice, 
But um, and that's the legal part. So following our sort of economic data, we've got our law and policy team, which is looking at um, questions of, of justice. And this is where we're kind of starting. And I, I have to say now I'm probably more interested in the idea of reparative justice in what does this look like in terms of solutions uh, because the lack is there. We are working with kind of the uh, tribal government trying to understand uh, the council. There's a lot of, of sort of, yeah, of tribal politics then that are very hard for these external um, researchers for us to, to understand. And the idea of the um, political tension within the tribe is very similar to what we see in, you know, dysfunctional parliament or in Congress because everything is is sort of run by elections. And so it's on these kind of temporal cycles, which Andrew, that's why I loved your paper talking about time, right? Everything is really driven by time. And that goes then to this idea about, about time. So this is the San Juan Basin, which is a very old basin in um, Southwest New Mexico. It's adjacent to the Permian Basin, which is one of the largest uh, basins in the world, petroleum basins in the world. And so we see the Southern Ute kind of sit upon the San Juan Basin. We have reach out to with the Hickory Apache uh, Nation, which is also in, um, in the San Juan Basin. And then also the Navajo are also on the um, east, the western edge of the of the San Juan Basin. So a very old kind of basin. And this is the Wind River. This is the Shoshone and the Arapaho. So this is another area of oil and gas, uh, you know, a, a, a reservoir of potential. But the the reason that I love these maps is that the res the reserves and the petroleum was there. It's been there for hundreds of millions of years. We've seen the sort of extinction, the carboniferous life that sort of gave rise to these assets. The tribes were moved here. And so this is the idea and the problem with thinking about critical minerals, about thinking about the, you know, the, the harms, the immense harms in terms of the environmental justice issues here and the tensions in, in thinking about these projects, both from the tribe and then for outside, um, you know, observance, uh, but is that the minerals are where they are. They're not movable. The tribes were not here. They were moved off of very productive, fertile land for homesteading, right? For these purpose of kind of the Western, you know, European sort of expansion and a really purposeful, intentional el elimination and extermination of a people. So, and I say people, right? They're, they're um, cert certainly not uniform, but they are moved into these kind of rocky, you know, these areas that were not, not some, some were had sort of um, in established areas, the a term reservation, right, is the, the reservation of land. But in a lot of cases, these are not kind of traditional um, uh, native lands. And so I moved to these rocky areas. And now all of a sudden, what's under the rocky areas? Minerals. So now we see more kind of these outsider participants coming in to try to extract minerals from, and then without kind of equitable participation, without kind of communication, without thinking about all of these, you know, potential, both positive and negative externalities um, with respect to um, development in Indian country. So the, um, and I'll wrap up uh, quick, Sherry, but the DOE, um, Department of Interior, you know, a lot of the projects they focus on, you know, the IRA, there's a lot of funding for kind of tribal, for marginalized communities, 
But one of the things we've realized is a lot of these are, are going to address the energy poverty aspects. And our project doesn't touch on energy poverty. But um, they go to, you know, electrification. They go to community solar, a lot of community. And so that is important because there is a poverty issue. There is a need issue. I mean, that's, that's, that's an important piece of this. But the idea is, too, is, well, how do you how do you become sort of industries of scale, right? Where is the revenue potential and thinking about tribal nations, like thinking about nations and thinking about not being a subsistence nation where I'm generating enough electricity that's wonderful for the community, but in engaging with some of these um, these other tribes and areas, it's thinking about how do we then turn this into something that becomes um, impactful for the community. And it goes to what Josephine was talking about, right? Jobs, revenue, financing, that, that beautiful slide she had up about what the just transition is supposed to be, right? And then so we have the revenue, we have jobs for our, you know, for their youth to kind of move back to. So um, that's kind of our, our project. Um, we've got, you know, um, anyway, I, I'm going to kind of skip through this, but this is just the, the justice piece. We're then moving into a sovereignty. My phenomenal RA is working on a research memo for sovereignty because the idea is how can you make any of these decisions? How can you make it without like true sovereignty, right? And the idea of, of treaties and the idea of treaty making history is that it was supposed to be between two sovereigns. But if the relationship is really that of a trustee and a beneficiary, Katrina, your uh, cousin was just phenomenal in thinking about that, right? If you don't have that trustee beneficiary relationship, I mean, that's not, that is not sovereign to sovereign, right? That, that relationship in and of itself doesn't allow for sovereignty. And then the other thing that's really interesting is that we think all the time about looking at these in a very um, siloed fashion, right? Energy justice, you know, energy sovereignty, but those are, it is justice, right? It is holistic examination that's required. It's not just sovereignty about making decisions about energy. It's decisions that are just, it's just decision-making period, sovereignty period, justice period. So that's kind of um, where we are. I'm really interested in any kind of um, advice, any sources, um, research, I mean, anything, but thank you. So I will, uh, as we're getting set up here, I'll, okay. So I lead a research program on disability inclusive climate action. And um, our early work was actually just looking at specifying what governments should be doing in terms of uh, respecting, protecting and fulfilling disability rights in the context of the climate crisis. And then the second um, step of our work was um, these, these status reports that we've um, released with the International Disability Alliance, where we've collected um, climate policies, both adaptation and mitigation policies, and we looked at whether they included people with disabilities, and we coded, in fact, um, the extent to which they respected, protected, and fulfilled those rights. And um, our results are generally pretty disappointing. So this is actually um, the latest data that we'll be releasing at COP um, this week. Um, and as you can see, the first number is whether there's a reference at all to people with disabilities in the nationally determined contributions. Um, so that's only one out of five. Uh, but then when you look at, you know, actual concrete measures in place to ensure that uh, mitigation measures are um, accessible and inclusive of people with disabilities, the results are pretty terrible. So our, our new sort of wave of projects are looking really at um, doing empirical research, looking at 
how this exclusion of people with disabilities from climate policies, what, what does it mean for people on the ground? So what I want to share with you today is uh, one of those projects, which is specifically looking at um, the implications of carbon neutrality policies on people with disabilities. And it's a case study set in the city of Montreal. And so in this project, we're looking at two things. We're looking at the distributive consequences of these policies. And we're also looking at how, in fact, these policies could be designed to disrupt rather than reproduce um, the barriers faced by people with disabilities. So our theoretical approach is a combination of two things, um, the human rights model of disability and research on the politics of decarbonization. So the human rights model of disability um, defines disability as something that results from the interaction of uh, physical and mental impairments and social barriers in society. So what it does is it, it on the one hand recognizes that people with disabilities are just part of the diversity of, um, of you know, human, humanity. Um, and, uh, and so there's place in this model for recognizing uh, people with disabilities as agents, for recognizing the importance of pride in terms of disability. Um, and however, it also integrates the, the notions around what the barriers in society can do in terms of oppressing and stigmatizing disability. And the research on the policy of de decarbonization, um, the sort of two key, two key points that are important here are, uh, are one, that um, this research points out that actually um, reducing carbon emissions is not just technical exercise in calibrating uh, policies that result in optimal levels of greenhouse gas emissions. It's actually a structural problem where you have to disrupt um, social, economic, institutional structures that have locked us into carbon. And uh, the second point of this is that this transition um, will result in and is resulting in unequal distributions of gains and burdens. So our case study is set in Montreal and why Montreal for two reasons. One, it has a very ambitious um, set of climate policies. Um, and it's also uh, recognized recently that it's had a, a pretty terrible record in terms of accessibility, disability inclusion. So there is a, a current effort to um, move Montreal to being a universally accessible city. So we're kind of looking at this in the context of the, these two intersecting policy sectors. And um, the primary research method we're using is participatory action research. So um, we collaborate with organizations of people with disabilities in terms of setting the research methods, in terms of um, the, sorry, the objectives, um, collecting data, uh, but also um, in terms of wanting to reflect lived experience, which unfortunately I won't be able to do today due to the lack of time. Um, but there's also semi-structured interviews we've done with people with disabilities in this project across um, Montreal, we're analyzing the public policies, and we also are looking at uh, quantitative data that tells us things about how inaccessible or accessible different aspects of these climate policies are. And the focus of this current project is really on sort of two types of uh, pivotal uh, carbon reduction measures in Montreal. The first targeting transportation, which is the largest source of emissions. Um, and the second is efforts to um, expand, consolidate, um, the urban green spaces in Montreal. So um, today with the time that I have, I'll just illustrate a few of the findings of what we found in terms of transportation. So uh, the basic idea of decarbonizing transportation is that we're, you know, these, these um, policies are gonna lead people to adopt more active or low carbon forms of transportation. And this is premised on sort of two things. One is changing incentives 
So making it harder to drive, making it more expensive to drive, uh, and perhaps also putting in place incentives that make it easier to uh, adopt these um, alternatives and informing people about why this is important. And um, the flaw behind uh, this thinking is it assumes that everyone has the same dependence on uh, using motorized transportation, um, which we do not. So this is just a data on the types of disabilities in uh, Canada. So one out of five Canadians, actually 22% have a disability. Uh, and so this is within that, um, within that group, how many have disabilities related to mobility um, or sensory impairments that would also make it more difficult to access some of these alternatives. Um, and the other flaw uh, behind this thinking is it assumes that the alternatives are accessible. And this is uh, very obviously incorrect. So this is a map of the city of Montreal. And by the way, I have maps of all the cities. Like when I go to New York, I show them how bad the New York subway is. When I go to Paris, the same thing. So they're all really bad. Actually, the only one that's good is like Vancouver uh, because it's very recent. So that, that, was, really, <laughs> that was a funny experience. I, I gave this presentation uh, to the BC uh, Climate Action Secretariat. And I usually come in with, look how bad you are. And then I was, I was actually surprised that like, okay, so this doesn't suck. Good job. Uh, anyway, so the current uh, number of subway stations in Montreal that are accessible to wheelchair users is 21. And the current plan will bring it to 41. So again, if you're thinking of what these policies are doing, right, they're making it harder to drive, harder to park. And the notion is, okay, well, people will be able to shift to the transit system. Only makes sense if you assume that that transit system is fully accessible. Given that it's not, what you're doing is actually imposing further barriers on people who already have mobility uh, challenges. What about bike sharing programs? How many bike sharing programs of accessible bikes? Uh, I love, I'm a cyclist. I love bike lanes. Okay. But um, they are not um, being designed always in a way that's accessible in terms of, for instance, wheelchair users who need to use a sidewalk to be able to access um, the van. And one of our interviewees um, told us a heartbreaking story about how she had to basically leave school because she could no longer um, get to school, um, get out of school using her accessible uh, van because of these bike lanes. Electric cars are very popular um, and uh, are sometimes seen as part of the solution, definitely part of Montreal solutions to tackle carbon emissions and transportation. Of course, they're uh, prohibitively expensive, especially given that a, a third of people with disabilities have a personal income of less than $15,000 a year. So these are not the people who are going to be able to buy the uh, $55,000 electric cars. But there's another problem with electric cars, which is that you cannot convert them to be used uh, by a wheelchair user because of where the battery is. It's on the, it's on the bottom. Um, and so none of the electric cars that are on the market today can be converted to be used by a, uh, a wheelchair user. So Tesla has this solution, which is this $25,000 robotic arm that comes out of the trunk grabs the wheelchair on the side and brings it back into the trunk. Uh, so this is great. Of course, this is only on the $90,000 Tesla. So, you know, for the wheelchair users who have $115,000 in income to spend on electric car, they'll be fine. But everyone else, um, if, the, if the future is you can only drive with an electric car in X, Y, and Z region, it's a massive problem because basically it means you're restricting the mobility of people with disabilities. Um, However, uh, okay, so those are some of the challenges that we're seeing, the barriers that are being reinforced. 
Um, it does not have to be this way. And one of the things that in our program we're doing is collecting positive examples uh, of disability inclusive climate action. So first of all, um, this, so this is a city, uh, this is a photo of how they've done bike lanes in San Francisco. So you can design a bike lane to be um, uh, accessible and not creating more barriers for people with disability. It's doable. The knowledge exists. You just have to think about it. Um, so the first thing that's really important is all of these measures should not make things worse for people with disabilities. They should not um, do any harm. Um, the second really is to challenge ableist norms about how, what it is, what does it mean for active transportation? Um, you know, what kind of bodies are we thinking about when we're designing bike sharing programs? So this is uh, a bike sharing program in um, the city of uh, Wichita in Kansas, and they have accessible bikes. And I'm sorry, but if Wichita can have accessible bikes and it's bike fleet, I think that New York, Toronto, and Montreal probably can do so as well. There's also an opportunity to design um, better, more accessible, low carbon products. So this is, a, this is actually an electric car that's been designed to be driven by a person with a wheelchair. So um, you just go in in this exact way and then you can drive it. Um, so this is exactly the sort of initiative that um, governments should be supporting in terms of if they're going to, you know, basically if their plans are everyone's gonna be driving an electric car in 20 years. It's, it's vital that these kinds of um, vehicles, for instance, are part of those, those plans. Um, something that I'm very excited about actually is the possibility of harnessing climate action for disability inclusion. So in the 2021 um, infrastructure bill in the United States, there's something called the All Stations Accessibility Program, something that was put in place by Senator Tammy Duckworth, who herself is a wheelchair user. And um, what is interesting about this program is that of course, you know, there's money going towards all the new green infrastructures will of course be fully accessible. But what they've done in this program is they've earmarked um, almost $2 billion to convert existing uh, transit infrastructures to make them accessible. So it's the opportunity of using uh, climate action to make things better for people with disabilities. And um, the, the case I like to make to uh, people who work in the disability field about why they should care about climate change. Well, one reason they should care is there's way more money being spent on decarbonizing um, the economy on, on um, climate resilience than unfortunately there, there will likely be in, 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 in the near future on, on disability. And so even just a portion or a fraction of some of this funding, if it goes towards making buildings and infrastructures more accessible, um, it's really could be transformative for the disability community. Um, something also that this perspective um, allows us to think about is thinking in terms of what are the barriers, right? What are the barriers that exist that hinder um, sort of the adoption of low carbon behaviors? If, if we sort of start to question the model of everyone has the same abilities, the same needs, um, and the same alternatives available to them, um, if we start questioning this model and we start thinking more about like what are the barriers that can prevent someone from adopting the kind of optimal behavior that someone might think uh, might be optimal. So this is data looking at uh, within the city of Montreal, which is a pretty dense urban area. And what it's showing you is different clusters. Um, so the middle, uh, the, the green uh, color there, that's whether you're gonna be driving, okay? More likely to be driving. And what you can see is um, one of the things that makes a huge difference is uh, whether you actually live next to a subway station. Um, whether your work is near where you, you, you live, right? So just speaking about, um, when you look at this kind of data, just, you know, and I'm not even talking about like rural 
Canada where you, you know, you would, I, I don't know how much of this would be green, most of it, I think, right? But if you start thinking about, okay, so actually it's not that people are choosing not to um, cycle everywhere or, 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 you know, take the subway or the bus. They're, they're making decisions based on um, the challenges that exist in their day, in their lives, their, their needs, and, you know, the, 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 um, the options that are available for them. And so we need way more thinking um, around sort of what are the barriers that exist that might hinder people in adopting the kind of behaviors that we might want them to adopt. Um, I often uh, get questions about how expensive this might be, you know, to integrate accessibility into uh, climate action. And um, I think that, um, I think that's a misguided uh, perspective. I mean, not only because I would like for people to think that disability inclusion is really important, but actually uh, when we start looking at the co-benefits of disability inclusion, uh, we see that actually designing climate policies and programs in a way that benefits as many people as possible is gonna be key to those programs working effectively. So um, we know, for instance, that um, you know, the, the elevators are installed in subway stations. They're not just used by people who are wheelchair users. In fact, they're not even primarily used by people who are wheelchair users. They're used by parents with strollers. They're used by people who maybe that, you know, they're, they're taking their bike down to the metro on a day where it's raining and they're gonna ride home. They're used by the person maybe who's injured. Um, they're used by people who are older, right? So in fact, it's, once you add all of this, um, all these groups together, you actually get a pretty high share of the population. And especially because of the growing elderly population in, in Canada, ensuring that um, these systems are, are, are accessible makes a huge difference to, to the elderly being able to um, grow old and aging in place. Uh, and so uh, the other thing I like to say is most of us don't think of ourselves, you know, we don't think 40 years in the future, right? But um, would you want to live in a city um, that 40 years in the future, maybe you won't be able to use a subway? Um, that's something that we need to, to think about. So I want to end with just a story about um, the importance of uh, valuing and enhancing the leadership of people with disabilities, recognizing their role as knowers, makers, and doers in the climate movement. So what I'm showing you here is an illustration of the fact that electric cars make noise, right? So actually uh, under 40 kilometers an hour, uh, an electric vehicle motor makes no noise. And um, about a decade ago, uh, blind activists from the National Federation of the Blind realized that this was a huge threat to them and their safety. And so they lobbied the US Congress to make it a requirement that if you sell any electric vehicle, it uh, will make a sound. And so this illustrates how um, you know, the sort of lived experience and leadership of people with disabilities can end up making something like an electric vehicle technology safer for everyone, right? It's not just people who have visual impairments, but the children crossing the street, um, our students who walk around sometimes crossing the street with their phones, uh, cyclists. Uh, yes. So, uh, so I think, you know, thinking about uh, the, the one thing I like to say about what we can contribute as people with disabilities is that we we know how to make things work for as many people as possible. And it's vital that we be part of these conversations. Um, in our research program, we have a podcast series where we've interviewed people with disabilities from all over the world um, to, to who share their lived experience of uh, climate change and climate action. So I encourage you to check that out. It's called Enabling Commons. You can find it on Spotify and Apple and all the other platforms. And uh, finally, if you're more, if you're interested in any, I've discussed today or anything else, 
Um, we do have a website, disabilityinclusiveclimate.org, and we also have an annotated bibliography, not just of stuff we've done, but basically everything that's been done on disability and climate change, we've brought um, together there. So uh, thank you so much. Thank you.